So, something's been bothering me since the last episode. We're going straight in, are we? No introductions? No explanations? I'm afraid there's no time. I need to get this off my chest. Well, I'm India Block and my anxious colleague is Ollie Stratford. And we're the host of this podcast, Words on Wood. Fine, we're all introduced now, but there's been a terrible omission. Last time out, we were looking at progressive uses of wood in design and making. Right. We had sequins made out of cellulose, 3D printed wood, machine-made chairs. So what's the problem? What did we leave out? Basket making. Would you call that an omission? Basket making feels very much like a traditional craft. You know, it's all a bit Moses in the bulrushes. That last episode was specifically about people doing new things with wood, and I won't have its reputation tarnished for a failure to discuss baskets. (laughs) Okay, hear me out. So we set ourselves the task of finding new and progressive uses of wood. I'm failing to see the problem here. Ah, well, what we didn't cover were projects that use very traditional woodworking techniques, but apply those to create something new. Now, it's not so much the objects I'm interested in, as it is what lies behind their making. What social value or change can be brought about through their production? So, what we're going to be looking at today are familiar woodwork techniques, but which are being applied to progressive social causes. Right. Are there designers out there who see woodworking as tying into broader social, economic and political themes? And just to be clear, this is baskets we're talking about. (laughs) We're still on baskets. Just listen. Well, I think I think if we look back to the origins of this country, um, there was a dream that was clearly more socialist than our current capitalist reality, and and how that dream I think connects to those great commitments is clear, right? Uh, of one blood, God has made all people. So that's Stephen Burks, one of the best designers working in America today. Oh, I know Stephen's work. And he's had a lot of success as an industrial designer. He won the Smithsonian Cooper Hewitt National Design Award in product design, which is the US's big design prize. I think he's also the first Harvard Loeb Fellow for product design. But he also has an unusual approach where he integrates a lot of handcraft into design. And he has quite a pluralistic international perspective. He's worked with a lot of artisans from around the world. Right, and he's very concerned with framing Western contemporary design as no more important or advanced than craft traditions from other cultures, which is a trap that the discipline falls into quite often. What I've found is that everyone's capable of design and, and that uh, design doesn't have to be uh, solely thought of as a kind of Western concept. That if we take these, kind of, uh, these cultures that have age-old ways of doing things um, and find essentially build bridges to contemporary design, there can be some innovation. Um, We've always believed that the closer the hand gets to the act of making, the more potential there is for innovation. But there was a bit there that confused me in what Stephen said earlier. What were the great commitments he mentioned? So this is where the basket weaving comes in. Do you know about Berrier College? I can't say that I do, should I? Well, it definitely has an interesting history. So, Berrier College was founded as a private liberal arts college in Kentucky in 1855, and it's the first college in the southern United States to be co-educational and racially integrated. Now, the Great Commitments are a list of principles that Berrier sets itself to abide by, such as 
to assert the kinship of all people and to provide interracial education. There's a lot in there about God and religion because this is a Christian college and I know that people will feel differently about that. But it also talks about its student labour programme. What labour is that exactly? It's not necessarily a word you'd expect to see associated with a school. No, precisely. So what the labour programme means is that every student on the campus doesn't only pursue their academic work, but they're also hired by Beria, which pays them a wage to work in the university's different departments, which include crafts such as broom making or ceramics, typically things rooted in the traditions of the Appalachian region in which Beria is based. And then the school sells what they produce. So clue me in. How did Stephen get involved in all this? I'm guessing he became involved in that craft programme and the basket making was a part of that? Got it in one. Stephen went in there to lead some workshops and to try and push a little at some of the design that was going on in the school. He wanted the students to feel empowered and to try out some different things when they were making. So Stephen has been working with all sorts of craft traditions and different materials with the students. But the basket making relies on wood and he says that it's really the ideal material for the kind of work he's interested in. I mean, I, I don't know, in many ways, wood is like the perfect material. Um, it's completely sustainable because we can grow uh, as much as we need. It it offsets carbon so naturally, right? I mean, it's inherent to the material itself. Um, it is completely malleable and, and uh, can be formed in so many different ways, um, shaped, carved, drilled, uh, et cetera. Uh, and and it, it just allows itself, it lends itself and has for um, all of uh, our time here on earth, uh, lends itself to making objects that, that mankind is needed from, from structural to, uh, to individual products. So for Stephen, these craft traditions are ways of getting at questions of self-identity. It's a route towards self-expression and a pride in one's work. Exactly. And that's what the Barrier Project is all about. Uh, all of the products are made there at the college uh, by stu the student labour force. And so historically speaking, the students have only been thought of as, as labour. Um, and, you know, I, I thought to myself, well, you know, clearly they're... Um, interested in what they're doing there it's it's sort of impossible that they're making these things and not wondering what they are and where they're coming from and and could it be possible to engage the students that are actually making the things in the design of the things themselves and so we began looking for ways that the students could um, somehow customize or or uh, contribute to individual details and that type of thing where while maintaining uh, essentially the same product overall, there could be moments where their signature or their hand could show through. Stephen's last comments really made me think of handwriting, like how everyone has their own. Right, but that's not something you get with robotic fabrication. The human element allows for variation, which is precisely what interests Stephen and why he's so committed to handcraft. So, I guess it's my turn to make a confession. All our talk of futuristic wood tech did turn my head last time. But I was also very curious to know more about exactly what Stephen is talking about here. The signature of the object's maker. I wanted to know. Can you decipher who made what when it comes to wooden objects that are carved by hand? To get an answer to that question, 
I spoke to Orhan Nixit about Zanat, his family company that's keeping the art of Bosnian Konjic-style woodcarving alive. You're not really guided by anything. You, you get the general idea of what this should, this should look like. There are no drawings of, or anything to follow. It's more what kind of a texture you want. The carvers just have one chisel. Everyone has their own, even, uh, you know, this same pattern done by two different woodcarvers will look different because everybody has their own handwriting, their, their own signature. But they're still able to interpret the idea of the designer artist. So just like Stephen spoke about letting the Berrier students show something of themselves in their work, Zanet's woodcarvers have their own handwriting. Exactly. And I really like this analogy. Ceramics and jewellery have maker's marks stamped into them. Artists sign their canvases. And wood bears the subtle traces of the human hands that have transformed or altered it. But what I wanted to know was whether you can actually identify a specific maker of a particular object. Yes, it, it, it is actually possible. We, we were able, even in historic pieces, we can tell who carved it. I will tell you, when we first start, you know, these modern p- patterns look more abstract. And, 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 and initially, we were not hoping that what two different people do would be so different. We had, for instance, a large table carved by two people where one started on one side and the other started uh, on the other side. And when they came to the middle, <laughs> it was clear that the two parts, even though initially they, they seemed the same, they looked different because everybody has their own handwriting. And that's what it is with Kari. Now, let me introduce you to Orhan and Zanat properly, because what they're doing is really impressive. Orhan and his brother Adam founded it as a design brand in 2015 to carry on the work of their great-grandfather, who started a woodcarving business that paired the incredible skills of woodcarvers living in and around his hometown in Konjic, Bosnia, with furniture producers in Sarajevo. They're putting a contemporary spin on a tradition that's over a century old. They created a style of furniture and a style of furniture decoration that became sort of the style in Bosnia between two world wars. Many pieces that were made by my grandfather are kept in different museums around, not only in Bosnia, but also throughout the Balkan region, representing the interior decoration style of that era. Now we use the same technique and the same tools, virtually unchanged over this 100-year period. But working with designers, we create carving patterns which are more abstract. The emphasis is more on tactility and giving the pieces a modern look of a modern piece of art. But essentially, the process has not. The look has changed, but the process has not changed. And this particular style of wood carving is so precious and unique that in 2017, UNESCO inscribed it onto their list of intangible cultural heritage. It sounds like there was an awful lot of paperwork involved by all accounts. Orhan said it was a five-year-long process, working through the bureaucratic process with UNESCO. But worth it in the end, I'm sure. And I noticed Orhan mentioned that Zanat is working with designers to push the craft forward into new areas, just like Stephen is with Beria. And just like Beria, 
Zanat is creating jobs and preserving a craft by training artisans in the Bosnian cognac style. Orhan used to be a development economist for the World Bank, so making sure that Zanat runs on a sustainable economic model was obviously something that was already in his wheelhouse. But he wants the company to do more than that. Already their master craftspeople have trained up to 40 young people in the art of woodcarving by hand. The impact on culture, on a community, is equally important. And for us, the aim with Zanat was to build a business model and to show how a company can be commercially successful while also contributing to preservation of cultural heritage and to creating, to building skills and to creating employment opportunities in a place like Bosnia, where uh, unemployment rates stood at 27% when we launched Zanat. Now, that's a very worthy project because Bosnia and Herzegovina have come through a particularly dark time with the Bosnian War of the early 90s. And Orhan's time at the World Bank would have given him front row seats to the legacy of political and economic problems that Bosnia now faces. And Orhan credits the resilience of the craft with its potential to keep the makers going through these hard times. And in fact, when one looks at the history of this craft, one sees that what enabled it to survive through different periods, and there were certainly very difficult periods, for instance, like first it originated in in a village as a hobby, but then it was perfected and elevated and brought to the arena of furniture making, thanks to systematic efforts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which ruled Bosnia at the end of 19th and beginning of, of 20th century. And everything stopped during World War I. It was revived between the two wars. Again, it stopped during World War II. And then after World War II, the workshops were nationalized. But it has been very adaptable. The craftsmen always adapted to the market needs, to the current political and economic conditions. And this adaptability made it survive. And that's, that's kind of what, what we're trying to do now also. I guess we're both coming to the same realisation here, that craft isn't just old masters sitting in a room perfecting centuries-old wood techniques for rare art pieces. It's an alive and vital process that can give young people work, inject opportunities for employment and model better and more sustainable labour practices for the communities that they come from. Exactly. And here I want to link back to Stephen's project, which has an important economic element to it too, insofar as it's turning craft tradition into paid employment. In some ways, Stephen has a harder job than Orhan, who is very much immersed in and responding to a specific craft tradition. By contrast... Stephen is an external designer coming into Beria and grappling with its own history and ways of working. I think you've hit the nail on the head, and this is an issue that a lot of designers face. How can you interact with craft traditions and make your own contribution to them while still remaining respectful? Stephen is very careful to not just paste contemporary design over a craft tradition to make it more palatable for an international consumer. I really tried to kind of um, move away from the idea of of uh, me being some type of heroic figure, right? Coming in from New York uh, to small town mm. Kentucky and taking over. Um, I tried to offer them um, a kind of non-hierarchical space in which to work. 
And so when they realized that they were free to be open and free to be expressive and, and, uh, and free to kind of talk about it, they were very critical, um, yeah. which, was, which was great, you know, which was great. It, it sort of forced us to reconsider what we thought um, a kind of object from Appalachia should be. How do we represent their local uh, culture, in a sense, and, and traditions and making, and at the same time connect to a consumer that might actually be international? So Stephen really doesn't believe in design as a cure-all. It's just one part of the process. It can help, but it needs to work in concert with the craft, history, and, of course, the students' own ideas. The project is very much about giving the students the tools to make their own creative journey with wood. In a sense, it's less about the final objects being produced, but more about what their creation allows for and enables in its creators and the community surrounding them. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Stephen is interested in the final objects, definitely, as all designers are. But I think he would argue that you shouldn't separate them from the social context in which they're produced. I think he worries about the way in which design can sometimes come in and flatten culture and craft, rather than emerging organically as part of them. Well, I can say that it's, it's fairly complex, you know, when, when as a designer you're dropping into a culture and, and uh, there is an inherent hierarchy, right, because of the way that we consider design uh, somehow uh, above craft. Um, but, but we've tried to kind of maintain um, a very open and collaborative approach. And the results of that process are kind of amazing. So Stephen and the students have created something called the Community Basket, which is made from strips of steam-bent wood, which all wrap around one another to form this complex structure. It's very beautiful, inspired by traditional shaker boxes, but it also has a great story behind it. And a lot of our work is about blurring the line between what can be described as quote-unquote design and what can be described as craft. And and we do that through an association with industry. So we, we try to find ways either through the detailing or um, through the production uh, to to allow these objects to transcend uh, just their materiality or just their kind of manual production. For example, with the community basket, we developed a small aluminum link that allows each band, uh, each oak band, um, to be connected to each other. So there's there's a structure developed um, through the union of the multiple bands and the multiple links. So hence the word community, right? So they're, <laughs> they really only work together. They can't really work individually. And that really is the perfect encapsulation of Stephen's wider approach. He wants to work with craftspeople and communities and see what, together, they can create. I'm going to learn as much as possible I, as I can from the artisans. So, so we, we, we like to think of these hands as hand factories and, and like to engage them in much the same way we would any other factory. Oh, I really like that description of hand factories. Something interesting that came up in my conversation with Orhan was this tension between woodcraft and contemporary design because of how factory work and mass production has become kind of synonymous with this modern, minimalist look. Yeah, woodcraft often has this image problem of being folksy. So when you think about it, it's because all of that intricate detail with the wood can only be made by hand, whereas mass production favours smooth lines and less ornamentation. Craft is mistakenly seen as something belonging to an earlier time. Right, and for Zanat, this posed several problems. Decades of automation has actually changed people's taste when it comes to design objects for our homes. 
While a system of mass production has taken away jobs and left us with an overproduction of stock, which is pretty bad for the environment. Later, when mid-century design was born, the, the, the objective was to make design objects and furniture uh, more accessible through mass production. But now mass production is, is leading to over, <laughs> overproduction and basically too much of the same thing. And at the same time, you, you, you have a lot of too much automation where by continuing that way, you're, you're, you're no longer creating jobs. Uh, jobs are being destroyed through, <laughs> through automation. So my feeling was that the time is right also to turn more towards craft because we wanted to pursue the same ideals of democratic design, but it just required a different thing in our time. Democratic design is another really key theme these two projects have in common here, isn't it? I mean, Stephen and Orhan are both using design as a vehicle to push beyond traditional hierarchies of production and consumption and create something a little bit more collective. And the making of wooden objects by hand is something that gives back to the creator, who gets to put something of themselves into it, not just the company that ultimately sells the product to the consumer. I mean, it's just more satisfying to make something by hand, isn't it? By training and employing woodcarvers, we are creating employment opportunities and providing for a good life for those individuals who want to do this kind of work, manual work. We as human beings have, you know, manual work is what separated humans as a race, what made us who we are. Of course, this approach doesn't come without its challenges. Handmade design is obviously more expensive because you have to pay for the time and labour and training. For a lot of audiences, it's a real process to prove that craft is something worth the luxury price points. Well, what's frustrating um, often, Ali, is that that craft doesn't have the same perceived value um, as, especially craft outside of the European context, doesn't have the same perceived value as "quote unquote" luxury. When in fact, uh, they're they're pretty much the same thing. It's just a question of where uh, a thing is made and how a thing is made. And so, um, you know, the 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 program at Berea had really downgraded itself in a sense because it wasn't uh, driven by design and it wasn't kind of maintaining a, a dialogue with contemporary culture. Um, and so, you know, there was the opportunity to not only involve the students in the making, but then also shift the perception of the products uh, a bit more into um, today's world <laughs> and, 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 and hopefully, right, hopefully heighten the value of those things by making them new again. Right. And both of these initiatives are using design to make something traditional, new and exciting. They're showing that technology isn't the only way of creating interesting objects or design processes. You can apply time-worn craft techniques in socially progressive ways. Absolutely. And Stephen is now interested in seeing how far that can be pushed. What could you do with woodcraft that would really stretch people's expectations and make them look at the field in a different way? You know, my son and I actually went down to Berea um, a couple of weeks ago. We spent a week uh, working on more, um, I would say, expressive objects using the same techniques as the community baskets. Uh, <laughs> and we we don't we don't actually know where that's headed, but but we ended up with um, a couple of objects that were extraordinary just because we'd never gone there before. 
I mean, imagine a basket that's the size of a human being, right? Maybe seven feet tall, or or imagine <laughs> imagine another basket um, with with rings or bands that are actually four feet in diameter. Um, so so th- there were uh, there were quite a number of expressions that we arrived at that were um, only possible through crafts relationship to to industry. And wood is really essential for enabling this. It may be a familiar material, but it's also a material that is flexible and which supports the ideas they're getting at. So it, it, it's difficult to imagine um, wood being treated in a way that uh, comes across as, um, as artificial. Uh, and, and I think even now with the injection molding of wood um, and the, the, the various sort of high-tech uh, um, processes, additive manufacturing processes that may be utilizing wood, um, it still is contributing its, uh, its kind of organic nature. That's something that Orhan feels too. Around 64% of Bosnia is forested, he told me. So from a logistics point of view, it absolutely makes sense to use the wood that's there already. But Orhan is also an advocate for the value of craft, period. We have this essential need to use our, to use our hands, to create things, to express our artistic talents. And many people enjoy doing this. And that will probably be the case as long as humanity exists. And they add value. You know, this, some of the things are still made much better by human hands uh, than they are made by, by machines. And I think that's a point of view which really resonates with the zeitgeist. Design is coming to understand the value of traditional craft and is seeing in it a different model to industrial design and some of the problems with which it is associated. Overconsumption, overproduction and so on. Which is where we'll give the last word to Stephen, because he's a designer who does work with those larger industrial systems too, but he's now pushing for approaching the field in a slightly different way. It's an approach in which handcraft assumes greater importance and where that craft is anchored to ideas of social good. I can't claim to be pure here, right? I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not at all claiming that, you know, we, we haven't contributed. Uh, and many of the things that, you know, I've designed in the world um, are, are, you know, operating in, in a fairly traditional model and, and may not be so considerate of their sustainable uh, future. But I can say that we try to design things that, um, that are made to last and in many ways, the production of less objects is probably always <laughs> better than more. <laughs> but for sure, our our um, our craft-based practice has gotten a lot more attention and 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 is really feeding into uh, what tends to be the zeitgeist today, right? Um, with with a nod towards sustainability, with a nod toward uh, social practice. Um, and and with a nod toward uh, just thinking in a very different way about how design serves uh, people and, and the earth. This has been Words on Wood, a podcast about forestry and how it intersects with design and architecture. It has been made in collaboration with and supported by AHEC. Words on Wood is hosted by India Block and me, Ollie Stratford. It has been produced and edited by Evie Hall. 
Our next episode looks at the Global Timber Tracing Initiative, World Forest ID. 